is the big ponder. This is Carriad Harmon with the big ponder. Okay, let's do one more yeah. thing before we go downstairs, and that is, let's open a package. Professor Tom Levine is a media scholar working in the German department of Princeton University. And right now, he's tearing into one of four packages that arrived from eBay just this week. <laughs> this guy has done a good job of wrapping, really a good job. And then the disc You see, Tom is a collector with a capital C. To, to use the ugly term in collector language, I'm a completionist. And I'm here because 10 years ago, he made a discovery that has slowly taken over his mailbox and his life. One Sunday morning, back in 2011, Tom was browsing at his favourite local flea market when he found something he had never seen before. A small cardboard record inside a weathered envelope. And I brought it home and put it on my record player. And it turns out it was... A spoken letter from a soldier. Hello, Mary. This is Buzz speaking. Axel and I are over at the U.S. Old Building here at Eglin Field. We're just loafing around as usual and decided to make use of this little gadget that they have here. Boy, I love to talk. The recording itself was mostly small talk, but Tom was fascinated. What gadget? What was this record even? And where had it come from? You know, I'm a scholar, so what scholars do is they start doing research. And I went online, and I went to the library, and I checked all my sources. And to my astonishment, I could come up with nothing. As a media scholar, Tom has spent much of his career exploring the history of technology and sound. He's written and translated books, curated exhibitions. The guy teaches at Princeton. Yet neither he nor any of his colleagues knew anything about mailable records like this one. And so I started using eBay and various eBay-like sites all over the world and going to flea markets, and pretty soon I was finding more and more of these discs. As Tom searched, he found hundreds and hundreds of records going back as far as the 1920s, and they were showing up all over the place. He found listings in Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Germany, Luxembourg, Poland, Portugal, Taiwan. And at a certain point, my wife thought I was having an affair because I was getting up at all hours of the night and going to my computer and she said, what are you doing? And when I explained to her that I was putting in bids for for gramophonic letters, she found it a bit perplexing. Tom had discovered the lost history of voicemail, gramophonic letters. For four decades, from the 20s right up until the mid-60s, people were recording their voices and mailing them to each other right through the postal service. No telephones or computers required just a recording device and a stamp or two. And anyone could leave a message for a friend, family member, or a long-distance lover anywhere in the world. Was that exciting to you as a collector? And as Yes. You feel like you're doing pioneer work. It's all new territory since everything remains to be discovered, right? It's all fresh. So I'm assuming there's a method to your, to your madness here. Can you, can you talk yes. me through how so, you've organized this? 
Soon after Tom began collecting, he received a generous grant to digitize, transcribe, and catalog every gramophonic letter he could find. And today, 10 years later, this tiny office in the German department at Princeton University is home to the Princeton Phonopost Archive, the largest collection of audio letters in the world. Alphabetical first by country. Some of the earliest recordings in Tom's archive are steel discs made in the mid-1920s. As a media theorist, they're really interesting to me as a record of a moment in time when people are becoming accustomed to recording their voice. This was not something that people had had much experience with. It's hard to put these recordings into context now, when each of us is carrying a recording studio in our pocket. But back in the 1920s and 30s, self-recording was still a very new concept. And the idea that you could mail your voice to someone else, like a letter or a photograph, was absolutely unheard of. And as Tom listened to these early recordings, he began to notice a trend. Lots of people seemed to be grappling with the same new idea, that a recording of the voice itself might outlive the speaker. They were using the records to memorialize themselves, leaving messages for loved ones to listen to in their absence. I'm thinking in particular of of a very moving recording, strange recording, done at the 1935 Reichsrundfunkausstellung, the German Reich technology fair in Berlin. This woman steps up to the microphone with her husband and addresses her two sons. She says, if later on we're no longer around, Let this be a small souvenir, letting you know that we will want to be around you forever and ever, and only want to do our best, dear boys, to bring you up as capable German men. That is our greatest wish, and may our blessing be always with you. It's like a weird audio testament like a will the year this recording was made the entire city of berlin would have been rich with nazi propaganda hitler already chancellor had become the fuhrer and new laws were passed, stripping Jewish people of their citizenship and designating them as subjects of the state. The march to war had begun, and soldiers on both sides of the Atlantic would soon find a new use for these gramophonic letters. In December of 1941, 
the United States officially entered World War II, and millions of young men from all over the country were sent to military training camps far away from home. Long-distance phone calls were impossibly expensive. We're talking hundreds of dollars in today's money. So brands like Pepsi-Cola and Gems Razors sponsored recording stations, and thousands of soldiers mailed records home to families anxiously awaiting news. Hello, Mom and Dad. Well, it's been seven months now since you have heard my voice, so here you, here goes. I hope you all are well. Dad, I want you to take it easy this hot weather, and you too, Mom. I woke up this morning with a feeling that something unusual was going to happen, but I didn't expect to be standing in front of a microphone sending my voice to both of you back home. We're having a lot of fun up here, me and a couple of my buddies. We've only been offshore the first time. They keep us pretty busy where we're at, but we get all we can to eat, so we don't need to worry about how we're going to eat. I sure wish I could make it for Christmas. This record will have to serve as a substitute for a couple of months, because that's all it is between you and me. That's a piece about you not feeling too hot lately. You know better than to feel bad while I'm not around. We've got a quartet here, two of the chaplains and a couple of the fellows, and singing. How do you say, we put that on the other side here? Guess maybe you folks could get a kick out of that. We got about ten more seconds. I miss you very much, honey. And that's about all I can say. I sing, but I can't sing. Goodbye, and I love you, and I miss you. I've listened to 30 or so military records from Tom's archive, and mostly I'm struck by how young the speakers are, how many boys are leaving messages for their mothers and making promises to their girlfriends. Of course, most of these discs were sold by third parties, and we'll never know which of these soldiers actually made it home. Surprisingly, very few of these records say much about the war at all. In contrast to the earlier discs, there are no great reckonings with mortality here. No solemn promises or last words before the front. They're mostly small talk, jokes about the food, questions for the folks back home. We need to listen not only to what is said, but what is unsaid. Maybe it's the insistence prevalence of phrases like, boy, I can't wait to taste your food again, mom. Boy, I can't wait to drive in that car again, Bob. That it has to be read as an expression of an anxiety of, I hope not only this voice of mine arrives in your living room, but that I too will one day be able to return. It's hard not to wonder how these military letters in particular ended up in Tom's archive. It's clear that someone cherished each one enough to preserve it, but over the years they were all passed down and forgotten, and eventually Tom picked most of them up on eBay for just a few dollars each. Here. Ha, here we go. There we go. Here we go. These are all Nazi voice letters. Ha. Of course, it wasn't just American soldiers who had access to this kind of technology. 
German soldiers recorded voicemails for their families too. Der sprechende Feldpostbrief, the speaking letter from the front. These are particularly interesting. In the in the center where there's a label, you have the photograph of the person speaking. Oh, that is the actual person. That's on the that. actual person oh, that's on the. Isn't that amazing? Tom has carefully pulled a disc from a folder in his filing cabinet. It's pale yellow and delicate, covered in a thin layer of laminate. At the center is a faded black and white photograph of a young Nazi soldier in uniform speaking into a microphone. And what's really interesting is about it is we have the person speaking, we have their voice, and we don't know who they are. Right? So we have these incredibly powerful traces of their individuality, but we don't know who they are. So, nun, ihr Lieben, haben wir auch etwas Musik hier. Mein Kamerad Willi von der Kompanie wird euch jetzt ein Liedlein vorspielen. Also, Willi, jetzt geht's los. When people talk about this period in history, I think of black and white newsreels, Hitler and Churchill, and the nightmarish footage of concentration camps that I watched in history class. But these voicemails are different. They're personal, intimate, unremarkable. This record was made in December of 1944, just five months before Germany's surrender, with no more information on the envelope all we know about the man who recorded this is that he missed his family and hoped to see them in the new year. When we realize that the bulk of the voices are people who are no longer with us, we realize that this archive is at once very poignant, an archive of loss, and very uncanny, an archive of ghost voices. And it's, I think, that simultaneity of moving absence strange intimacy that makes it so endlessly fascinating and engaging. At first, outside of special occasions or military programs, this kind of recording equipment was only really available to the upper classes, those who could afford a recording unit of their own. But as early as the late 1930s, manufacturers realized a lucrative opportunity, coin-operated recording booths. These were often plywood units about the size and shape of an old-fashioned telephone box, and they started popping up at train stations, penny arcades, and amusement parks. They had names like the Vocamat and the Warner Automatic Voice Recording Studio. But one company, above all others, quickly emerged as king. And, then, and you know, the, the single biggest one is Voiceograph, right? This is Voiceograph, Voiceograph. This is, and Voiceograph continues over here. 
The Voicegraph machine was modern, bright, and futuristic, and it was everywhere. <laughs> We're now in Indianapolis at the Union Station. Oh, take it, bus station, pardon me. And we're enjoying ourselves very, very much. Oh, having a good time. <laughs> Soon, voiceograph machines appeared in theme parks, resorts, and on beaches. There was even one at the top of the Empire State Building. This record is to Mommy, Daddy, and Billy. I am on the top of the United of the, of the Empire State. It is a lot of fun going up in the elevator. Before long, new models arrived with extra bells and whistles. Some even let you choose a musical intro. And by the early 50s, if you wanted to send a voicemail from any state in the country, all you had to do was drop 35 cents into a slot. Yeah, but you just said you were going to tell me you love me. Oh, I no, you might blackmail me. <laughs> I'll tell you I love you. Oh, you love me? When people hear about Tom's archive, they always want to know about famous personalities. Did Ella Fitzgerald ever wander into a booth at Coney Island? Are the speakers bursting with talent and poetry? And the answer is no. But that's what makes this whole project so unique. Now was afraid to tell you, but we couldn't wait any longer, so we eloped. We went down to Florida for our honeymoon and are having a lovely time. We hope you won't be too angry at us for doing what we have done, but you know how it is, young love, so we figured it's the right thing to do. <laughs> I really can't think of anything to say. We didn't see each other in a long time. We just are going to have to say goodbye because it says 10 seconds. By the mid-1960s, tape machines began arriving in the U.S. They were small, cordless, and they spelled the beginning of the end for voicograph booths everywhere. Units all over the country fell into disrepair, and by the early 2000s, Tom felt like the only person in the world who knew they had ever existed at all. Until one day, he began to notice something odd. He could pick up most records on eBay for just a few dollars, but voicograph discs were different. Auction after auction, Tom was being outbid, and all of his competition was coming from a single buyer. This was my dream, to meet another collector who was equally focused as I was, in fact, more focused, the man, the expert on everything having to do with voiceograph discs. And not only voiceograph discs, voiceograph booths. That eBay buyer was a product engineer and patent attorney named Bill Bowman. And it turned out Bill was collecting these records for a very specific reason. He was hoping they'd help him figure out how to bring the booths themselves back to life. After hearing Tom talk about Bill and his obsession with the voicegraph booths, I've made the journey to Rehoboth Beach to meet him for myself. Oh, wow. Here we are. There they are. 
Bill's workshop is packed to the roof with boxes of parts, sheets of plywood, signage, and three record booths in various stages of repair. These like the same maple wood and pine wood. Bill is an expert on every detail of these booths, from the original color of the paint right down to the screws. But 20 years ago, this whole project began quite by accident. In 2005, Bill was restoring vintage pinball machines and arcade games, just for fun, when an unusual piece found its way into his workshop. Even in its condition, it was pretty cool. There was a coin-operated phone mounted inside it and a big bell on the outside. The booth was unrecognizable. Not only had it been turned into a phone box, but the original signage was covered in seven layers of thick green paint. So we laid it on its back, and it's a it's a 75-year-old plywood box. It just it fell apart like a slow-cooked steak, and so it exposed everything that was in it. There it was. Bill had no idea what the machine on the floor of his garage was. And like Tom, he couldn't find any information about the booths online. He spent months gently stripping away the paint to uncover the original artwork, cleaning and reassembling the mechanism, reverse engineering the entire booth from the ground up. When I got sound, I think I have it even recorded, and it's embarrassing because it's just like hissing. (laughs) But I was so happy to hear hissing. You know, it's like, oh my God, you know, I have recorded something. Altogether, Bill would spend 10 years wrestling with that first booth. When I was a little kid, Back in New Jersey, I did a science fair project with my dad, and it was intended to be a copy of the first Edison recorder. I never got it to work, <laughs> you know, and it, it always frustrated me because it seemed somewhat straightforward, and uh, having the first voiceograph gave me sort of like a second bite at that science project, you know, if they could see me now. <laughs> when I asked Bill why... Like, why after all these years is he still finding and restoring these machines? He says there's just something special about climbing into a booth and making a physical recording. How many times have you sung into your phone and recorded it? Even today, you don't do it. You know, but in the voiceograph, it just, you feel like singing. It's almost like a confessional. You know, you close the door behind you and it's just you. In a world full of MP3s and YouTube videos and endless streams of content, there is something to be said for capturing a single analog moment with all of its imperfections. Each disc is a tiny time capsule. We left the record on the moon. You know, we didn't leave a digital recording. You know, what would, what would somebody do with a digital recording, you know, a thousand years from now? But they could probably figure out a record. These machines are now so rare that Bill says he may have already found every original booth left in existence, about a dozen at his last count. So now he searches for remnants. He'll find a sign or a door and build an entire replica around it. Today, Bill's booths are sought after by collectors and celebrities. Neil Young recorded an entire album in one, and musician Jack White owns three. They've been on The Tonight Show and shipped all over the world, but only three of them are open to the public. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Thank you guys so much. There's one in D.C., one in Nashville, and I've come to a historic music store in Louisville, Kentucky, to meet the proud owner of the last one, Todd Johnson. There it is. That's the one. These things look so cool. I know. Aren't they great? 
sitting at the back of Guitar Emporium, past rows of vintage guitars and amplifiers, is an original 1947 Voicegraph booth. And this one is extra special because Bill managed to figure out exactly where it came from. He was able to link it to the State Fair of Texas. And this was unit number three. Um, There were also coins in the coin box that were from the late 40s that were still original to when it had operated there at some point. I've asked Todd to open it up and show me a little bit about how it works. Inside the cabinet is an intricate network of wheels, discs and pulleys that spring into action at the drop of a token. Oh, it comes down that little slide. It slides down the center yellow slide here. There's right no computer the in the booth, so nothing is hidden in a circuit board or a hard drive. You get to see the whole right thing crank and spin. It is like Willy just... Wonka. <laughs> It's so cool to look at that Todd had a window installed so you can watch it working as you make your record. All right. Well, hopefully I got everything back where it goes. Oh, I can drop that you. on the left-hand side. That's so exciting. And again, once you drop Todd's the closed the booth back, back up start. and given me a small Thank gold so token. Much. All right. Okay, so I'm in the booth. How to make a recording. Record allows you about... Standing in this 74-year-old Texas voiceograph, it's impossible not to think of all of the people who've been right where I am, reading these same instructions. I wonder who they made their records for and where they ended up. Watch for signal lights below, then talk into microphone. I've been in recording studios plenty of times. And even though I'm used to speaking into a microphone, it's still nerve-wracking. There's just something astonishing about the fact that this machine is going to capture my voice and carve it into a lacquer spiral that will be around long after I'm gone. So I am putting my coin in the slot. The light says get ready. And down the record goes. Oh, and now it's gone so quiet. Begin recording when this space lights up. I worry too much. I think I get it from my father. My mother tells me it's a family thing. Oh, I walk around with Like thousands of people before me, I record a song for my sweetheart and send it to him in the mail. Now it lives in a stack of records at our house, sandwiched between Stevie Wonder and Weird Al. Eventually, it might end up in our attic or as a memento for our grandkids. Or maybe, many, many years from now, someone will find it at a flea market and send it in to Tom's archive. The Princeton Phonopost archive is still growing. So if someone in your family recorded a phonographic letter, or if you find one at a flea market or a garage sale, please reach out to Tom. He would love nothing more than to hear from you. You can send him a modern-day email at phonopost at princeton.edu or go to the website at phono-post.org. Huge thanks to Bill Bowman, who you can find at voiceograph.com, and to Todd Johnson and all of the kind people at Guitar Emporium Louisville. 
The Voicegraph in this story is open to the public, so go visit and make yourself a little piece of audio history. This story was written and produced for The Big Ponder by me, Carriette Harmon, and it was edited by the indispensable Rachel Aronoff. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible. <laughs>